Book One, Chapter Seventeen of Michael Strogoff by Jules Verne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Seventeen: The Rivals. Michael was in comparative safety, though his situation was still terrible. Now that the faithful animal who had so bravely borne him had met his death in the waters of the river, how was he to continue his journey? He was on foot, without provisions, in a country devastated by the invasion, overrun by the emir's scouts, and still at a considerable distance from the place he was striving to reach. "'By heaven I will get there,' he exclaimed, in reply to all the reasons for faltering. "'God will protect our sacred Russia.' Michael was out of reach of the Uzbek horsemen. They had not dared to pursue him through the river. Once more on solid ground, Michael stopped to consider what he should do next. He wished to avoid Tomsk, now occupied by the Tartar troops. Nevertheless, he must reach some town, or at least a post-house, where he could procure a horse. A horse once found, he would throw himself out of the beaten track, and not again take to the Irkutsk road, until in the neighborhood of Krasnoyarsk. From that place, if he were quick, he hoped to find the way still open, and he intended to go through the Lake Baikal provinces in a southeasterly direction. Michael began by going eastward. By following the course of the Obi two versts further, he reached a picturesque little town lying on a small hill. A few churches with Byzantine cupolas colored green and gold stood up against the gray sky. This is Kowivany, where the officers and people employed at Kamsk and other towns take refuge during the summer from the unhealthy climate of the Baraba. According to the latest news obtained by the Tsar's courier, Kowivan could not be yet in the hands of the invaders. The Tartar troops, divided into two columns, had marched to the left on Omsk, to the right on Tomsk, neglecting the intermediate country. Michael Strogoff's plan was simply this, to reach Kowivan before the arrival of the Uzbek horsemen, who would ascend the other bank of the Obi to the ferry. There he would procure clothes and a horse, and resume the road to Irkutsk across the southern steppe. It was now three o'clock in the morning. The neighborhood of Kowivan was very still, and appeared to have been totally abandoned. The country population have evidently fled to the northwards, to the province of Yeniseisk, dreading the invasion which they could not resist. Michael was walking at a rapid pace towards Kowivan when distant firing struck his ear. He stopped and clearly distinguished the dull roar of artillery, and above it a crisp rattle which could not be mistaken. "'It is cannon and musketry,' said he. "'The little Russian body is engaged with the Tartar army. Pray heaven that I may arrive at Kolyvan before them.' The firing became gradually louder, and soon to the left of Kowivan a mist collected, not smoke, but those great white clouds produced by discharges of artillery. The Uzbek horsemen stopped on the left of the Obi to await the result of the battle. From them Michael had nothing to fear, as he hastened towards the town. In the meanwhile the firing increased, and became sensibly nearer. It was no longer a confused roar, but distinct reports. At the same time the smoke partially cleared, and it became evident that the combatants were rapidly moving southwards. It appeared that Kowivan was to be attacked on the north side, but were the Russians defending it, or the Tartars? It being impossible to decide this, Michael became greatly perplexed. 
he was not more than half a verst from Kowivan when he observed flames shooting up among the houses of the town, and the steeple of a church fell in the midst of clouds of smoke and fire. Was the struggle then in Kowivan? Michael was compelled to think so. It was evident that Russians and Tartars were fighting in the streets of the town. Was this a time to seek refuge there? Would he not run a risk of being taken prisoner? Should he succeed in escaping from Kowivan as he had escaped from Omsk? He hesitated and stopped a moment. Would it not be better to try, even on foot, to reach some small town, and then procure a horse at any price? This was the only thing to be done, and Michael, leaving the obby, went forward to the right of Kowivani. The firing had now increased in violence. Flames soon sprang up on the left of the town. Fire was devouring one entire quarter of Kowivani. Michael was running across the steppe, endeavouring to gain the cover of some trees, when a detachment of Tartar cavalry appeared on the right. He dared not continue in that direction. The horsemen advanced rapidly, and it would have been difficult to escape them. Suddenly, in a thick clump of trees, he saw an isolated house, which it would be possible to reach before he was perceived. Michael had no choice but to run there, hide himself, and ask or take something to recruit his strength, for he was exhausted with hunger and fatigue. He accordingly ran on towards this house, still about half a verse distant. As he approached, he could see that it was a telegraph office. Two wires left it in westerly and easterly directions, and a third went towards Kowivan. It was to be supposed that under the circumstances the station was abandoned, but even if it was, Michael could take refuge there, and wait till nightfall, if necessary, to again set out across the steppe covered with Tartar scouts. He ran up to the door and pushed it open. A single person was in the room whence the telegraphic messages were dispatched. This was a clerk, calm, phlegmatic, indifferent to all that was passing outside. Faithful to his post, he waited behind his little wickets until the public claimed his services. Michael ran up to him, and, in a voice broken by fatigue, "'What do you know?' he asked. "'Nothing,' answered the clerk, smiling. "'Are the Russians and Tartars engaged?' "'They say so.' "'But who are the victors?' "'I don't know.' Such calmness, such indifference, in the midst of these terrible events, was scarcely credible. "'And is not the wire cut?' said Michael. "'It is cut between Kolivan and Krasnors, but it is still working between Kolivan and the Russian frontier.' For the government? For the government, when it thinks proper. For the public, when they pay. Ten kopecks a word, whenever you like, sir. Michael was about to reply to this strange clerk that he had no message to send, that he only implored a little bread and water, when the door of the house was again thrown open. Thinking that it was invaded by Tartars, Michael made ready to leap out of the window, when the two men only entered the room, who had nothing of the Tartar soldier about them. One of them held a dispatch, written in pencil, in his hand, and passing the other, he hurried up to the wicket of the imperturbable clerk. In these two men Michael recognized with astonishment, which everyone will understand, two personages of whom he was not thinking at all, and whom he had never expected to see again. They were the two reporters, Harry Blount and Alcide Jolivet, no longer travelling companions, but rivals, enemies, now that they were working on the field of battle. They had left Ichim only a few hours after the departure of Michael Strogoff, and they had arrived at Kowivan before him, by following the same road, in consequence of his losing three days on the banks of the Irtish. 
and now after being both present at the engagement between the russians and tartars before the town they had left just as the struggle broke out in the streets and ran to the telegraph office so as to send off their rival dispatches to europe and forestall each other in their report of events michael stood aside in the shadow and without being seen himself he could see and hear all that was going on he would now hear interesting news and would find out whether or not he could enter Kowivan. blount having distanced his companion took possession of the wicket whilst alcide jolivet contrary to his usual habit stamped with impatience ten topecks a word said the clerk blount deposited a pile of roubles on the shelf whilst his rival looked on with a sort of stupefaction good said the clerk and with the greatest coolness in the world he began to telegraph the following dispatch daily telegraph london from kolyvan government of omsk siberia sixth august engagement between russian and tartar troops the reading was in a distinct voice so that michael heard all that the english correspondent was sending to his paper russians repulsed with great loss tartars entered kolyvan today these words ended the dispatch my turn now cried alcide jolivet anxious to send off his dispatch addressed to his cousin but that was not blount's idea who did not intend to give up the wicket but have it in his power to send off the news just as the events occurred he would therefore not make way for his companion but you have finished exclaimed jolivet i have not finished returned harry blount quietly and he proceeded to write some sentences which he handed in to the clerk who read out in his calm voice john gilpin was a citizen of credit and renown a train-band captain eke was he of famous london town harry blount was telegraphing some verses learnt in his childhood in order to employ the time and not give up his place to his rival it would perhaps cost his paper some thousands of roubles but it would be the first informed france could wait jolivet's fury may be imagined though under any other circumstances he would have thought it fair warfare he even endeavoured to force the clerk to take his dispatch in preference to that of his rival it is that gentleman's right answered the clerk coolly pointing to blount and smiling in the most amiable manner and he continued faithfully to transmit to the daily telegraph the well-known verses of cowper whilst he was working blount walked to the window and his field-glass to his eyes watched all that was going on in the neighbourhood of kowivan so as to complete his information in a few minutes he resumed his place at the wicket and added to his telegram two churches are in flames the fire appears to gain on the right john gilpin's spouse said to her dear though wedded we have been these twice ten tedious years yet we no holiday have seen alcide jolivet would have liked to strangle the honourable correspondent of the daily telegraph he again interrupted the clerk who quite unmoved merely replied it is his right sir it is his right at ten kopecks a word and he telegraphed the following news just brought him by blount russian fugitives are escaping from the town away went gilpin who but he his fame soon spread around he carries weight he rides a race tis for a thousand pound and blount turned round with a quizzical look at his rival alcide jolivet fumed in the meanwhile harry blount had returned to the window but this time his attention was diverted by the interest of the scene before him therefore when the clerk had finished telegraphing the last lines dictated by blount alcide jolivet noiselessly took his place at the wicket and just as his rival had done after quietly depositing a respectable pile of roubles on the shelf he delivered his dispatch which the clerk read aloud madeleine jolivet dix 
Paris. From Colivant, Government of Omsk. Siberia, 6 August. Fugitives are escaping from the town. Russians defeated. Pursuit by the Tatar cavalry. And as Harry Blount returned, he heard Jolivet completing his telegram by singing in a mocking tone. Il est un petit homme to habille de gris dans Paris. Imitating his rival, Alcide Jolivet had used a merry refrain of Belanger. Hello, said Harry Blount. Je sens, answered Jolivet. In the meantime, the situation at Coivan was alarming in the extreme. The battle was raging nearer, and the firing was incessant. At that moment, the telegraph office shook to its foundations. A shell had made a hole in the wall, and a cloud of dust filled the office. Alcide was just finishing writing his lines, but to stop, dart on the shell, seize it in both hands, throw it out of the window, and return to the wicket was only the affair of the moment. Five seconds later the shell burst outside. Continuing with the greatest possible coolness, Alcide wrote, A sixteen shell has just blown up the wall of the telegraph office, expecting a few more of the same size. Michael Strogoff had no doubt that the Russians were driven out of Kowievani. His last resource was to set out across the southern steppe. Just then renewed firing broke out, close to the telegraph house, and a perfect shower of bullets smashed all the glass in the windows. Harry Blount fell to the ground, wounded in the shoulder. Jolivet, even at such a moment, was about to add this postscript to his dispatch. Harry Blount, correspondent of the Daily Telegraph, has fallen at my side, struck by... When the imperturbable clerk said calmly, sir the wire has broken and leaving his wicket he quietly took his hat brushed it round with his sleeve and still smiling disappeared through a little door which michael had not before perceived the house was surrounded by tartar soldiers and neither michael nor the reporters could effect their retreat alcide jolivet his useless dispatch in his hand had run to blount stretched on the ground and had bravely lifted him on his shoulders with the intention of flying with him he was too late. Both were prisoners, and at the same time, Michael, taken unawares as he was about to leap from the window, fell into the hands of the Tartars. End of chapter 17. End of book 1.